And if you would, please turn in your Bibles to the book of Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20. We'll read the first 16 verses of Acts 20. Acts 20, verse 1. After the uproar had ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, and when he exhorted them and taken his leave of them, he left to go to Macedonia. When he had gone through those districts and had given them much exhortation, he came to Greece. And there he spent three months. And when a plot was formed against him by the Jews and he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to go through Macedonia. And he was accompanied by Sopater, or Sopater of Berea, the son of Pyrrhus, and by Aristarchus and Secundus of the Thessalonians, and Gaius of Derby, and Timothy and Tychicus, and Trophimus of Asia. But they had gone on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas. We sailed from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread and came to them at Troas within five days. And there we stayed seven days. Verse seven on the first day of the week. When they gathered together to break bread, Paul began talking to them, intending to leave the next day. He prolonged his message until midnight. This is not going to be a very long sermon, and I think after we preach this passage, nobody will ever think I've ever preached a long sermon. He prolonged his message till midnight. Verse 8. There were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered, and there was a young man named Eutychus sitting on the windowsill, sinking into a deep sleep. And as Paul kept on talking, he was overcome by sleep and fell down from the third floor and was picked up dead. But when Paul went down and fell upon him after embracing him, he said, Do not be troubled, for his life is in him. When he had gone back up and had broken the bread and eaten, he talked with them a long while until daybreak and then left. They took away the boy alive and were greatly comforted. Verse 13, but we, going ahead to the ship, set sail for Assos, intending from there to take Paul on board, for he would, uh, for so he had it arranged, intending himself to go by land. And he met us at Assos. We took him on board and came to my Mytilene, uh, sailing from there, we arrived the following day at Chios, and the next day we crossed over to Samos, and the day following we came to Miletus. For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus, so he would not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hurrying to be in Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. Let's bow our heads and ask God's blessing. Lord of heaven, Lord of this, your day. Lord of the table that is laid before us. Lord and author of the word that we have read and that it will now be preached. We ask your blessing on these souls gathered here, your people. Bless the preaching of your word to the saving of souls, to the sanctification of Christians, to the edification of your church. Hide the preacher behind the cross 
We pray in Jesus' name and for his kingdom's sake. Amen. As Acts 19 closed, we remember last week we saw that the city of Ephesus was in riot. An uproar that was started by Demetrius the silversmith and it quickly grew beyond his control. But the riot was finally stopped when the town officials spoke. And now we read in chapter 20, verse 1, after the uproar had ceased. So this gives us the timeline of what we're talking about. Paul was encouraged, if you'll remember, during that riot by the, the disciples and by some of the Asiarchs, the unbelieving friends of Paul there, to stay away from that rioting mob. And now it's time for Paul to move on. Just as Jesus has commanded when they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. That's what Paul was doing here. And we have in these verses before us much information about travel plans, city names that it's hard for me to pronounce in public. It's hard to pronounce in private that you're not there for me to be embarrassed about. We have all these travel plans. We have plans and we see in verse 3 uh, the change in travel plans. When Paul is planning... Uh, to travel and then he hears of a plot, a plan by the Jews to do called harm and he decides rather than sail to the place that he was going to travel instead by land to go through uh, the land route. At first glance we look at this and we say well this is just a trip itinerary. How are you going to preach a sermon from this? But on closer examination we'll see that there are many things here for us to glean from this text of scripture. I remember the first time that I read this text, the first time I heard this text talked about, I was probably about 12 or 13 years old, and I heard the story of Paul preaching till midnight and Eutychus falling from the window to his death, a story that I will never forget. I will never forget this man's name. I'll never forget this because someone helped me and gave me a little secret, a little clue as to how to remember it. If you're interested in that, ask me later and I'll tell you how you can always remember. As we look at these verses today, we see in the first place that the church transcended ethnicity, culture, and personal interests. In our day, there are so many trying to build churches based on worldly groups, worldly divisions, worldly interests. Many of us grew up in, the, in, in an unbiblical division of the church of Jesus Christ along race lines. There was the white church for white people. There was the black church for black people. And the white people didn't go to the black church. The black people didn't go to the white church. If you didn't grow up like that, I did. And it's unbiblical. Today, there are examples of churches founded on personal interests or special interests. The motorcycle church, the rodeo church, the hipster church, the homeschooler church. I even read about one church that meets in their fishing boats on the lake for what was described as a very brief service. Their shared interest, obviously, is let's get God out of the way so we can get the fish. There are these, these personal interests, these special interests that, that are, people are trying to build churches on that. And a church built on a special interest 
is sure to draw a crowd of people. It's sure to draw a crowd of people. But the foundation of it is something besides Jesus Christ and the gospel and the word as soon as the rodeo is over. Or when we disagree about how the rodeo should go. As soon as the motorcycle ride is over. Or when we decide, I don't want to just narrow this to motorcycle riders. We need to narrow this to Japanese motorcycle riders. Now, I know some of you are Harley guys. I just wanted to exclude you for a moment. <laughs> when, we, when we disagree about those personal interests, the church built on those personal interests falls apart. Even for those who do this with sincere motives, because I do believe there are with those who with sincere motives who do this, they are trying to use worldly means to build a church. Paul's ministry was not limited by special interests. It wasn't the tent maker church. Paul's ministry was not limited by race or by ethnicity or by cultural differences. Paul ministered in Asia and in Macedonia and in Greece. And that's just the places listed in these few verses that we read. We know that he ministered many other places. And the men who are mentioned in this text, they're from Berea. They're from Thessalonica. They're from Ephesus. They're from Derby. The foundation is not where we're from. The foundation is not what we do. The, the foundation, the thing that these had in common, the basis for ministry and the foundation of the church was Jesus Christ and what he has done to save sinners. And not only was this for Paul's ministry, it's for churches and ministry today. This is what we should be about. The church of Jesus Christ transcends worldly relations and personal interests. There is something here. There's a connection here for us to think about, though, about connections between churches in different places. To think about church associations. These churches that are mentioned here are all in different places, but they're involved together. They're connected in ministry. They share in ministry formally associating with one another. Now, all churches cannot be associated. All churches cannot be joined together. This has been attempted in the past and it fails. That there are doctrinal differences that would make joining together with another church impossible. They would hinder the ministry of the word of God. We would have to compromise things that we disagreed on. And sometimes that is absolutely impossible. There may be differences of administration that would keep churches from partnering. For example, we, we call many Presbyterians brother. But because of differences in church order, because of differences in covenant theology and, and differences in how we see ordinances, those things prevent us from planting churches together, even though we call them Christian brother. But for those churches with whom we hold the same doctrine, with, with whom we confess the same confession of faith, we can and we ought to be formally joined in association. And we are. 
Joining informal association, this is from our association. Joining informal association is for the mutual encouragement and support, assisting in training men for ministry, help in matters of difficulty when a church requests aid, and cooperative efforts to advance the kingdom of Christ. Those efforts like church planting, like sending missionaries, like seminaries. The church of Jesus Christ transcends worldly relations and personal interests, but Christian relations and kingdom interests should join us together formally in association. And we see that, though the word association is not used in the New Testament, we see associationalism throughout the New Testament. Secondly, we learn from these verses that the fruit of evangelism, the fruit of evangelism becomes evangelistic seed sowers. The fruit of evangelism becomes evangelistic seed sowers. These men who are listed here in this text, those who traveled with Paul, Sopater, Aristarchus, Segundus, Gaius, Timothy, Tychicus, Trophimus, these men were gospel fruit from Paul's ministry. Paul preached and they came with repentant faith to Christ. These men were gospel fruit, but they didn't come to Christ just to stay as newborn babies in Christ, they grew and they themselves became seed sowers. They were converted under Paul's preaching and they grew, these men, to be preachers themselves. Now, every one of you who has been saved by our Lord, you have a field. Wait, I'm not going to be a preacher. You have a field in which you can and should sow the seed of the gospel. You have a field. Very few will be preachers, but you have children. You have grandchildren, nieces and nephews, friends and family. You have a field where you can sow the seed of the gospel. People you know and you have a special voice in their lives. It is God's plan that the fruits of the gospel become gospel seed sowers. In the third place, and we'll concentrate here throughout the remainder of the message, we find Paul's ministry and we note first the method of Paul's ministry, the method of Paul's ministry. Look at verse 3, we see in this, in verse 3, no, I'm sorry, in verse 1, 2, and 12. In verse 1, 2, and 12, we see this word that is used, we see it in verse 1, he exhorted them. Then in verse 2, we see he gave them, he went through the districts and gave them much exhortation. And if you look in verse 12, we see this word translated comforted. They left and they were comforted. These are all the same word from the same word parakaleo. Parakaleo. Now, now this may sound familiar to us. It's related to the word paraclete, the word that we use uh, to refer to the Holy Spirit. And what it means is one who comes alongside. So I went to a Greek lexicon 
A Greek lexicon is where you can go and find definitions of Greek words. Um, so this is what we find for parakaleo. Listen closely. Parakaleo is to call to one's side, to speak to, to admonish, entreat, instruct, beseech, to console, to, to encourage and strengthen by consolation, to comfort, to instruct, and to teach. Now I want to read that again, and I want you to listen and see if you hear the elements of preaching the word in this. To speak to, to admonish, to entreat, instruct, beseech, console, to comfort, instruct, and teach. This parakaleo, this admonishing, this exhortation, this is Paul preaching. This is the method of Paul's ministry. It is to preach. Listen to this quote from John Eady, commenting on these verses from Acts 20. This is a longer quote, but it's worth hearing. Paul preached unto them. What else could he do? Necessity was laid upon him. Yea, woe is unto me, he says, if I preach not the gospel. What other substitute for preaching can be devised? Ceremonial will not do. Souls may perish in ignorance amidst genuflections and music. Satire will not suffice. It is far from being a perfect work just to cast contempt on society for its frivolous and unmanly attachments, to expose the hollowness of civilization, to denounce the lack of faith and sympathy, exposing what is evil without pointing to what is good and wooing men to it. To open up no refuge for a sinner. To not ply them with and give them no argument to rush into it. It is only mocking to give him a stone when he is hungry. To show a sinner that he is a wretch without pressing upon him with the truth and blessing of the gospel. This is not the work of the apostle. He taught salvation. He preached Christ, showed the path of glory. He spoke of the guilt of sin, but preached of the blood of expiation. If preaching was the presentation of the good news, what else could the apostle do than preach? Paul preached. That was the method of his ministry. And his preaching, in his preaching, he admonished, instructed, consoled, encouraged, and strengthened the saints. He called sinners to Jesus to be saved, to find forgiveness of sin and peace with God through the life and death of Jesus the Christ. Paul preached. Note fourthly, the place of Paul's ministry. Paul ministered, he exhorted, and he not only exhorted and encouraged others, he found encouragement himself, where? Among the Lord's people. Among the Lord's people. Paul, Paul went to many places. His traveling would be, at that time, worldwide. He went to many places, but what is more relevant to us is not just all the places that he went, but that wherever he went, he was among God's people. From the very beginning, when Paul was sent on the first missionary journey, 
We don't find him going anywhere alone. Paul traveled with traveling companions. It's always Paul and Barnabas, Paul and Silas, Paul and Timothy, Paul and that we see in here. We, as Luke writes, Luke is there. We have all these traveling companions. There was one time that Paul was alone in Athens, but why was he there in Athens? He wasn't ministering alone. He was there waiting for them to catch up. He was in there waiting for his traveling companions. There's no place that we find Paul alone as a Christian. And there's no place for a Christian minister to be alone. There's no place for a Christian to be alone. Now, let me pause here. I don't have this in my notes, but I think it's important. I think it is vital for every person and especially every Christian to have some time where there are not other people around. You need some time alone with God, alone with his words, alone with your thoughts. You need that. But not a lot of we need to be with God's people. There's no place really for a Christian, a growing, strong Christian to be alone. I, I hear Christians say, I'm struggling. I'm struggling with, with whatever their particular struggle is, with assurance of salvation, with temptation, with weakness, with, with feeling defeated. I'm struggling. But when you find a Christian who is withdrawn, who is isolated, who is absenting themselves from the assembly, no wonder you're struggling. We need to be with the Lord's people. Now, now I was making a point earlier, we need to have some alone time and the whole world would make this point. You need to be with people. But it's true. All people are from the Lord. God is the creator of all things. All people are from the Lord, but not all people are the Lord's people. Christian, you need to be with the Lord's people. This was the place of Paul's ministry. And this is where you will be ministered to in the body, in the gathered church. Now, I was speaking to someone about this and they said, but wait a minute. Last week you said Paul had unbelieving friends and we need to have unbelieving friends. Now you're saying we need to be with God's people. If you remember last week I said we should have unbelieving friends but they shouldn't be our closest relations. God's people, the Lord's people should be our closest relations. How many times have I heard people, I'm an only child don't hold it against me. I, I, I heard all of your judgment right there when I said I'm an only child. <laughs> But many of you have brothers and sisters. How many times have I heard people say, Christians in the church say, I feel closer to the people of God in the church than I do to my own brothers and sisters. These brothers and sisters in Christ are closer than, that's how it should be. Now, I hope and I pray for you that your blood brothers and sisters are also brothers and sisters in Christ. What a blessing that is. But our brothers and sisters, the relationships in Christ, those are the most important. And we need to be with the Lord's people. All people are from the Lord, but not all people are the Lord's people. We need to be with the Lord's people where we will be ministered to in the body, in the gathered church. Listen, live streams are useful. 
for those occasions when there is no other option, when someone is ill, when we're traveling and can't, can't be in a church, that there's, there's a use for that, but there's no substitute for being in the gathered assembly of God's people. Listen, this is not about family. Even though we have Waco family in our name, it's the family of God that we're about. And, and I want you to hear this. Your family reunion is not church. The lake in the summer, the deer stand in the winter, the festival in the fall, the office when things are really busy. Those places are not the places where you will be exhorted, where you will be encouraged in Christ. You need to be in church. Christians need to be with God's people gathered and assembled for worship. All people come from the Lord, but not all people are the Lord's people. And we need to be with the Lord's people. Fifthly, notice in verse 7, the schedule of Paul's ministry. Now Paul ministered every day, but we see here on the first day of the week. On the first day of the week. Beloved, every day is from the Lord, but not every day is the Lord's day. Listen to what our confession of faith says in paragraph in chapter 22 paragraph 7. As it is the law of nature that in general a proportion of time by God's appointment be set apart for the worship of God. So we're going to set apart some time for worship. So by his word in a positive, moral, and perpetual command binding all men in all ages, he hath particularly appointed one day in seven for a Sabbath to be kept holy to him. One day in seven is a day for the Lord. And, and here in the footnote, we find a reference to Exodus, to the fourth commandment there. But our confession continues to speak of this one day in seven, this Sabbath, it is to be kept holy, which is from the beginning of the world to the resurrection of Christ was the last day of the week. From the beginning of the world to the resurrection of Christ, the last day of the week, and from the resurrection of Christ was changed into the first day of the week, which is called the Lord's Day, and is to be continued to the end of the world as the Christian Sabbath, the observation of the last day of the week being abolished. We have here in the text of Scripture in the New Testament, clear statements that the church met by apostolic command on the first day day of the week. Now, in our confession, when it speaks of this and says there's this change, by the way, let me just recommend here, if you're interested in this, Jonathan Edwards did a, a, a lengthy article on, I'm going to say it this way, the change and perpetuity of the Sabbath. Now, it may be the perpetuity and change of the Sabbath, but I remember the change and perpetuity of the Sabbath by Jonathan Edwards. If you're interested in that, it's something good for you to look up. Our confession, when it speaks here, also points us in the footnotes 
to texts of Scripture. It points us to 1 Corinthians 16. In 1 Corinthians 16, we find Paul directing the church to receive an offering for the needy saints. And when does he say receive that offering? Receive that offering on the first day of the week. And we find a reference to Revelation, but we also find in the footnote a reference to this text from Acts 20 that is before us today, where we read here that Paul was gathered with the church and he preached to them on the first day of the week. Now we could spend an entire sermon speaking about the Christian Sabbath, the Lord's Day, and I don't want to spend a whole lot of time here, but I do want to say that they met on the first day of the week, and this is the Lord's Day, the Christian Sabbath day, and we have no mention in Scripture about the Lord's morning. Nowhere, the Lord's morning. But we have so many people who practically believe that that's what it is. It's the Lord's morning. We come together, we give the Lord the morning, and then the rest of the day is mine to do as I please. Some knowing that the Sabbath, Sabbath means rest. So knowing that, some say, well, what we should do is we should use Sunday as a time to catch up on sleep, to sleep in, to sleep late, to catch a nap. To do, listen, it, a nap might be a good use of some time on a Sunday, but it should be when worship is done and when the acts of mercy are done and when the public and private worship is done, we shouldn't just use Sunday as a day to be lazy. The whole day belongs to the Lord. Six days, I should say it this way, seven days are from the Lord, but only the first day is the Lord's day. All days come from the Lord, but not all days are the Lord's days. And we should keep the Sabbath holy. Keep the Sabbath holy. Now, again, our confession speaks of what it is to keep the Sabbath holy. Let me just read this. The Sabbath then is kept holy unto the Lord when men, after due preparation of their hearts and ordering of their common affairs aforehand, do not, uh, do not only observe a holy rest from all their own works, words and thoughts about their worldly employments and recreations, but are also taken up the whole time in public and private exercises of his worship and in the duties of necessity and mercy. When we prepare as best we can, and then we fill the Lord's day with worship, private as well as public, and then we do the things that are required by necessity and mercy. We don't really have to worry about a list of things we can and can't do on Sunday. We don't have to worry about those because the Sabbath day will be filled with things which honor our Lord and keep his day holy. Every day is from the Lord, but not every day is the Lord's day. Sixthly, let's note another method of Paul's ministry the Lord's table, the Lord's supper. You might be finding a pattern here. Every supper is from the Lord, but not every supper is the Lord's supper. The supper for the early church was probably more substantial than what we observe today in terms of the physical provisions. 
They probably had more to eat and drink than the representative and symbolic amounts that we partake of when we do it. But for them and for us, the Lord's Supper is a command of the Lord. He says, as often as you do it, do it in remembrance of me. As often as you do it, do it in remembrance of me. And in that is the command to do it. It is a means of grace, a channel through which God brings grace to his people and blesses his people. The spiritual presence of Christ is promised. As the Lord said, I am with you. I am with you. Now, now he doesn't mean this in the sense that, well, God is everywhere. So, of course, he's with us. No, when we come to the Lord's table, he is with us in a special way. The Lord's Supper is Christ communing with his people at his table for his supper. The Lord's Supper is remembrance. But it's more than just remembrance. The Lord's Supper is symbolic, but it is more than just a symbol. Christ is spiritually present as we come to the table. And let me just remind you as you hear the word preached, Christ is spiritually present in the preaching. We proclaim when we come to the Lord's table, the Lord's Supper, we proclaim Christ as the only hope for humanity. And we celebrate his saving work. We celebrate his life and his death represented in the bread and in the cup. And we are pointed in the supper to his second coming, to the day when we will eat and drink with Christ in the kingdom. Beloved, every table set is from the Lord, but not every table is the Lord's table. We also see here concerning the Lord's Supper, concerning the Lord's table, we see the order of the Lord's Supper. After Paul preached in verse 11, we see that he had the supper. And it sounds like he probably preached more after the supper. But here's the deal. The supper does not come before the preaching. And the supper certainly doesn't come absent from the preaching. Now, now there are churches, and maybe you're thinking of some, I'm thinking of some right now, that might meet in the morning for the preaching and in the evening service they have the Lord's Supper. I'm not criticizing that, but what I am saying, we shouldn't just come together for the Lord's Supper without the Word. The Word. The Word. It's only after we've received the Word preached that we have opportunity to respond to the conviction of the Spirit and to submit ourselves to the Lord, to submit ourselves to the Word that we have heard as we come to the table in communion. When we meet and we have preaching, if there's no singing, if there's no baptism, if there's no Lord's Supper, when we meet and we have preaching, we have church. We have worship. We still call that church, but when there's no preaching, there's no church. The Lord's Supper follows the preaching. And we see that order here in the text. That brings us to the seventh and final place. Note the centrality of the Lord's word. 
the centrality of the word. Now we kind of touched on it there as we talked about the Lord's table, but the centrality of the Lord's word in Paul's ministry. Verse seven says, Paul began talking to them. Now we see that talking in English, but this is not just a casual conversation. This is that exhortation. They were exhorted. They were comforted. They were encouraged. It was preaching. Paul began talking to them. He began preaching. All language, all words, all language is from God. But not every word is the Lord's word. Shame on a church who would substitute something else in the place of preaching. A musical presentation, a dramatic play, even a speech from a visiting political figure who would address the congregation in a place of preaching? What a shame. I don't know about you, but I've been in churches and experienced every one of those things. Paul preached. I know I'm kind of hammering this nail in this sermon, but there are a few things here for us to glean. Notice that preaching for Paul was a lengthy process. I don't know how long I've been going, but it's not short. And preaching for Paul was a lengthy process. Now, this example is probably extreme. Paul preached here, what I put in my notes, this was at least four hours, but as I start calculating, it had to be more than that. This was a long, drawn out thing. He preached till midnight, and then he preached till morning. He preached, the text says he prolonged his message until midnight, and then after the supper, he spoke again till early morning. This was an exceptional time. Paul is leaving, Paul is going to, to take leave, he won't see some of these saints ever again this side of heaven. So for Paul and for all who listened, they valued hearing the word preached over those precious hours of sleep that they might get. They valued it over the thing that they might be doing instead of hearing preaching. They valued the preaching of the word more than other things. Church, this is, this is important. We need to get this. And, and it's not just something that we have as an idea or an ideal. It's something that we should put into practice. This is why I want us collectively and you individually to think about this so that we can greatly reduce and where we can eliminate completely the things that take us away from the preaching of the word. Now we have now, as far as I know this morning, a couple of ladies who were watching very small children in the nursery. This is so that fathers and mothers can sit here knowing that their children are taken care of and can focus in on the word preached. This is only for very young children because as soon as children are able to comprehend spoken language, they need to be in the preaching of the word. It's a means of grace. Why would we send them away to make paper mache stuff and macaroni art when they could be hearing the preaching of the word? 
They need to be trained and practiced in sitting and listening and paying attention. And some of you are doing a fine job of training your children in that. And I applaud you for it. Now, those ladies who are watching those children in the nursery, they're not the same ladies every week because we want everyone in the church to be on a steady diet of the preaching of the word. We have men who watch over our safety while we meet. And in our day and age, we find it wise to take these steps, but it's one or two men. And by the way, they don't need your company. They'll be okay. It's not the same men every week for the same reasons. And it means that the rest of us can come in here and we can clear our minds of, of whatever worry that is, those concerns with safety. And we can be fully present for the preaching of Christ. These people gave up their entire night to hear Paul preach. We need to not let the preaching stop. Words, words are from the Lord, but not every word is the Lord's word. And Paul preached and he preached long. In the Reformed tradition, we have preaching that is long. When I go to preach at other churches, not other Reformed Baptist churches, but other churches, I've heard them say, one church said, we're worried about how long you preach. We think we might need a diehard battery under the pulpit for the, the microphone. And, and they're, they're picking and they're joking, but they're really saying we don't like long sermons. I heard a friend say that he really liked his church and really liked his pastor because the preaching is never over 15 minutes. I, I know I'm making some of you jealous. <laughs> yeah, 15 minutes listen to, to say those kind of things there's a problem with understanding first of all the Lord's day right if the preaching is 15 minutes what are you going to do the rest of the day it's the Lord's day but there's also a problem with understanding of the primacy of preaching in the life of a Christian if the preaching of the cross is the power of God unto salvation if the preaching of the word is a means of grace for God's people, if the preaching of sound doctrine is the salvation of both the preacher and those who hear, why would we cut that short? Why would we truncate it? Why would we watch the clock? Now, I know y'all see me look. I, I, I look at my watch because I know there are considerations. For backsides and bladders. I know that. And, and, and there are also preachers who come unprepared. Or preachers who are not uh, skilled. And they somehow can take the living, active, powerful word of the living God. And bore the masses with it. I know that happens. Listen closely. Those men either need to be trained to be better preachers. Or we need new preachers. Present company included. The preaching of the word is important for us. It's too important to fool around with. The preaching of the gospel is the main 
thing. It's a main thing. Words are from the Lord, but not every word is the Lord's word. In closing, we'll see the persistence in preaching. The preaching of the Lord is important to them. They gave up their night, but it's also so vital that nothing stops it. Paul is preaching. We remember he's persecuted in one place, he goes to another. He, he preaches in a place and is run out of town, but the preaching continues somewhere else. Remember when he was no longer welcome in the synagogue and he rented a school. We saw that just a few weeks ago. He rented a school. The preaching is going to continue. We're just going to go across the street. One thing that prohibits preaching, you move and the preaching continues. In a, this text today, a boy, probably 12 to 14 years old, is our understanding from the language, 12 to 14 year old boy dies. Dies! He's dead! But the preaching continues. The preaching went on. This boy, I mean, we understand the problem, right? I mean, you can't blame Eutychus, 12 to 14 years old. Paul's preaching till midnight. It's hot. They're three stories up. There are lamps or candles that are flickering flames going. He's sitting in this windowsill, and I, I'm imagining a breeze blowing through there. I can get sleepy just thinking about that. <laughs> What, what a great place. To, well, it's not a good place to take a nap. We see why. <laughs> he fell asleep. Eutychus fell asleep. And then asleep, he fell. From the third floor window. And, and maybe he hit his head. Maybe the, the stories. So now we think about a 10 foot average for, a, for stories of a building. Maybe it was taller than that. We don't know. Whatever the particulars are. He fell from the third floor window and he died. And as I imagine it in my mind, Paul preached, the boy fell and died, and Paul walked over and continued to preach while he raised the boy from the dead and continued to preach as he went back to his place and they had the Lord's Supper. The preaching continues. Not even a death in the congregation stops the preaching. When I was a young man, my wife said, this is a true story. <laughs> this is a true story. I wouldn't bring you a story that's not a true story. When, when I was young, we had a man in our church during the preaching have a heart attack. Uh, Brother Shelby sat there with his wife and he had a heart attack in the middle of the church. Now, here's the thing. Some of these particulars, was it a heart attack? Was it a stroke? It was, it was something. He had some event. I remember it as a heart attack. And... The paramedics were called and took the man out. The preacher did stop preaching and we prayed while they came and they got Brother Shelby and they took him away and took him to the hospital and I'm sure his wife went with him. And then, okay, now in verse three, where we were, he picked right up. That preacher, he wasn't a perfect man, but in this, he modeled the importance of preaching. The preaching continued. You'll remember John Calvin when he was run out of town. Years later, he came back and he opened the word to the exact same verse in Colossians 
and picked up where he left off. What a model that the preaching will continue. This is what we will do. Now, beloved, I will do my part as long as the Lord allows to keep the preaching going. But you also have to do your part. When you absence yourself from the preaching, you say the preaching can stop from you. When you allow yourself to be distracted by your phone, I just need to check that text right quick or see who updated Facebook. By counting the boards in the ceiling, by whatever those things are, by, by going in and out of the room, you are saying, for my part, the preaching can stop. Now listen, just as I said that, I, I will have to apologize to Zach later. Just as I said that, a man's leaving the room because he needs to. He's taking care of the kid, right? There are times that that has to happen. But sometimes it doesn't have to happen. We all know that. Sometimes it doesn't have to happen. Paul and this church in Troas, they didn't allow the preaching to stop even when a young boy died during the sermon. Raised him from the dead. And by the way, that was special apostolic powers that Paul had that are long since ceased. Raised him from the dead and keep going. Church, let us not be so easily taken away from the Lord's word. Lunch will be there when we get there. If there are preparations that have to be done, those preparations can be done when we get there. Sometimes you can wait to go to the potty a few minutes. When you can't, you got to go and get back. All people are from the Lord. Every day is from the Lord. Every supper is from the Lord. And all language is from the Lord. But let us apply ourselves and invest our time and efforts in the Lord's people, in the Lord's day, in the Lord's supper, and the Lord's word. Let's close with this and make this prayer. Oh Spirit, now we thank you for giving us your word. Please bless its proclamation, the truths that we have heard. Indwell us and empower us and cause us to obey. Shine now the light of scripture on all that we do and all that we say. Spirit, come and illumine this truth for us today. Guide us in sound doctrine Keep us on the straight and narrow way. Wield now your sword, O Spirit, the quick and living word, and rend our hearts asunder with the truths that we have heard. Search us now and know us. Expose sin and iniquity. Conform us to our Savior. And holy we shall be.